Hello, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy and space science podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, and it's uh, always good to have your company. Hope you're well. Uh, coming up on this episode, uh, being a, um, a, a, a divisible by five episode, 330, it's all questions. We've got some text questions and some audio questions to go through. Uh, three of them are focused on the moon, so uh, and, and very different questions they all are. We've also got a follow-up to the DART mission and uh, a question about virtual matter and what of the future of ground-based telescopes now that we're getting such great technology out into the ether. Uh, we're going to tackle all of that today on Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report, it feels good. And I couldn't do this without Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> I'm sure you could, Andrew. Um, you, you know, it, you, in fact, you might do a better job. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, yeah, no, no, no. Well, it uh, might be, I, yeah, the science fiction show, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it would turn into. Yeah. Um, well, it would just, we'd have to call the, the podcast BS by Andrew. So uh, that, that would be it. No, um, which is um, not what Astronomy Daily is all about. That's uh, that's uh, certainly factual, but um, it's not me creating the information. I'm just passing it on, mm-hmm. which um, is what I'm generally reasonably a- average at. Um, now, how you been? I mean, I- I've been away, even though we've had episodes continuing. We pre-recorded a whole batch before I went away. So how have you been the last few weeks? Very well, thank you, Andrew. A few hiccups here and there, a few ups and downs. I've been uh, down in South Australia doing gigs down there and wow. south coast of New South Wales doing gigs down there. It's been good fun. but uh, And there's more to come, actually. We've got mm. tremendous happening at the end of this month. But it's been fine. And I'm looking forward to hearing about your trip away. Yeah, I haven't got much time to talk about it today, but I I did have a question because I discovered something. We went to uh, Florence, so I saw um, a statue of Galileo there, (laughs) which uh, I took a photo of. But when we were in Monaco, I saw an observatory. Are you aware of that? Yes, uh, it it is the the observatory in Nice. Uh, yeah, the would, Nice. The nice it wouldn't be in Monaco, but yeah. I was in Monaco and I and could see it up on, the, on top the hill. Of the That's right. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. I, I, I've never been. I have, like you, have been on the train probably to to Monaco, uh, but I did have a colleague who worked there, and she said it was a delightful place to work because you'd expect yeah. uh, the Observatory of Nice. Yeah. It's a very vertical place. It is, yes. Yes, it is. I I know per square metre it's the most expensive real estate in the world, but I couldn't live there because you're going up and down stairs and lifts and travelators and, I mean, I don't know how they race Formula Ones there. There is no room to move. They were, Uh, um, last time I was there, they were just, I think they had the Grand Prix and they were dismantling all the stands and things. So you could sort of see how it all fitted into the, uh, into the city. But yeah, it was, it was quite impressive. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was. Uh, Anyway, um, it's, um, yeah, it was a fantastic trip, but I'll tell you about it in a, in a later episode. Sounds Mm. good. Anyway, we'll get back to my holiday some other time when we've we've got time to talk about it. But uh, we've got an all questions episode today, Fred, and we're going to kick off with a question from uh, Zach in Washington. Now we've heard from Zach before, but he's uh, he's following up the Dart mission. 
Hello, Andrew and Fred. Love the podcast. This is Zach from Washington, D.C. I watched the DART mission broadcast live. Thought it was amazing. The whole mission was great. Fantastic idea to to save the planet. Um, I know this mission was a proof of concept, but wasn't the impact asteroid, the smaller one, um, too small in itself even to have hypothetically done any damage to Earth? Like we would, this mission would be sort of extrapolated to larger celestial bodies that pose an impact. So I'm just kind of wondering about the the value. We we would probably in the future need to repeat this with a larger payload. Uh, Anyways, that's my question. Thank you. Bye. Mm, yeah, he makes a very valid point, does Zach? Uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, because. <laughs> Zach, uh, forgive me for that. Sounded uh, very cheeky, but um, but the bottom line is that uh, the object that was moved and it was successfully moved by the spacecraft, yeah, is about one hundred and seventy meters diameter, and that would do um, almost continent-wide damage if it hit the Earth. It is a significant object, uh, poses uh, a significant risk uh, if an object that size um, entered the Earth's, uh, you know, atmosphere and then hit the ground. Um, the, so when you think of it, so the, 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 the sort of size scales that we've got historical records of are, are in the region of 50 metres. The Tusker event was probably an object 50 metres or so across. That mm. devastated thousands of square kilometres of, of, of Siberian forest. Uh, had it been a city, that would have been... Uh, you know, curtains for the city. Um, So 170 metres is definitely a potentially hazardous and dangerous object. Uh, And it's that scale of objects, that approximate size, that is currently the the target of interest for all the various telescopes that are looking for these things. So far, we have found none of that size that would impact the Earth within the next 100 years. Um, But the, you know, the... uh, the potential for damage from one of them is significant. So this this experiment was not just a proof of concept in the sense that, uh, you know, can this be done for an asteroid of any size? Uh, it actually is a great test of what we might need to do if one of these things turns up. We think we only know about 40% of those objects of that size that would cross the Earth's orbit. Whereas when you look up to a kilometre or so, uh, we think we've got most of them. Not all of them, because there are some some within the Earth's orbit uh, that are hard to find. There was one that turned up last week, 2022 AP7, uh, which uh, was hitting the headlines last week because this is an asteroid which won't actually hit the Earth, but uh, at 1.5 kilometres in diameter, it's the size that we think we're pretty well sure of that we've got most of them, but because that one orbits within the Earth, it is uh, it is not uh, yet, um, uh, it, you know, it hasn't been found we we talked about that um, a month or so ago about uh, I think there was an astronomer that uh, came out and said, look, we need to pay more attention to the sun for those yes. objects that are orbiting within the uh, orbit of the Earth uh, because they're a risk as well because we're looking outwards at things coming in, but there could be things on the inside coming out. Coming out. And, exactly. this, and this is one of them. I, I must say I... I I saw the headline while I was on holidays uh, pop up uh, from yep. the popular press saying, yep. planet killing asteroid discovered. And yep. um, then, of course, the next line said, but it won't hit Earth. 
that's right. It's its orbit actually keeps it away from Earth, even though it, the, the orbit does cross the Earth's orbit. But uh, the asteroids, uh, as I said, it's 2022 AP7. It's in a what's called a resonant orbit with the Earth. So it, every once once round for the Earth is five times, sorry, every five times round for the Earth is once round for the asteroid. Right. It's never in the same place. But uh, it is possible that down the track, uh, orbits change if you've got gravitational interactions with things like Jupiter, uh, and that thing goes along out into the solar system on its sort of outer side. Uh, but yeah, it highlighted exactly what that astronomer said. I can't remember who said that, that we really need to keep an eye on things inside the Earth's orbit. Mm. And the best way to do that is actually uh, with a spacecraft orbiting uh, somewhere at the um, first Lagrange point between Earth and uh, and the Sun, uh, which is a stable point, looking back at the Earth for these near-Earth objects tracking not too far from the uh, from the Earth within the Earth's orbit. Yeah, the Sun is a rather pesky thing, isn't it? It just—it's so bright, it it it, it blinds us from seeing yeah. some of the threats to Earth that may exist, yeah. and therein lies the problem. But uh, there are ways of getting past that, surely. With radar and you know things of that sort, that's right. Mm. Radar, you tend to know, need to know where things are before you can squirt radio waves at them to get a reflection. That's a fair point. Uh, so uh, Zach's assessment of the size of um, Dolphus was, um, yeah, a, a bit of an under mm. underreaction, maybe. Yeah, that, that's that's all fine. Or overreaction, <laughs> maybe. I, I don't know. But um, so it, it is a it is a. A nasty one if it would ever it would hit be, us. Yes, yeah. Right. So Diddy must would be worse. That's nearly uh, seven hundred meters, I think, or seven hundred fifty. Yeah. yeah. But Diddy Moss is big enough that we would probably know about it already. Yeah. Well, we do. Yeah, we do. Obviously, <laughs> we do. We've, we've been there, <laughs> done that. Now it's actually in the main asteroid belt. It's never going to come anywhere near the Earth. But, oh, well, that's good news. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, but yeah, we keep an eye out for um, whatever may develop out there because there's oh, there are. There are plenty of sources of asteroids and it just takes a nudge or a bump or a wink or, yeah, you know, right. under-the-table payment and it's on its way. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and forgive me, I must correct myself. I said that uh, Didymos is in the main asteroid belt. It's not actually. It is um, a, a one that comes within the uh, inner solar system. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, but its orbit is stable and we're cool. <laughs> I, I suppose what we're getting at here is size. When it comes to asteroids, size does matter. Does indeed. So, how small is small enough for it not to do anything? Uh, a, a, a two or three meters. <laughs> they probably come in every week, <laughs> right? Burn up in the atmosphere, maybe as a fireball or an explosion in the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, as you know, though, you know the the um, event that the asteroid that hit the atmosphere above uh, Chelyabinsk. Chelyabinsk, that's right, back in 2013. That was about 30 metres across. And look at the damage that did. Yeah. The shockwave when it hit the ground. Yeah. Indeed, yes. Um, yeah, we got lucky on that one, didn't we? Did. Yeah. All right. So, Zach, yeah, it does um, It does seem that um, Dimorphos could do some horrendous damage. But you're right. If it's a bigger object, um, we're going to probably have to find other ways to redirect them because that experiment probably was just small in the scheme of things. And I think we've discussed the potential for multiple impacts on an object or um, painting it white on one side. It all depends on how long you've got. Yes. If you've got a long time, then you can do all these tricks. Yeah. 
Indeed. Uh, Zach, lovely to hear from you. Now, uh, we've got an email from Rusty in Donnybrook in Western Australia. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I'm wondering, could dark matter be virtual matter? We know that uh, virtual matter exists, but we uh, have no idea of its matter density. We know that VM pairs are extremely short-lived, but do not exist in great numbers for tiny amounts of time. Uh, During that time, if uh, uh, baryonic in nature, they should each have a tiny mass uh, for that tiny time. Uh, Baryon particles all have positive mass, so both members of any pair would not cancel with respect to mass. There could be a great deal of mass trapped within the fabric of space as virtual particles, but we have not worked out a way of quantifying it. Dark matter interacts gravitationally with ordinary matter and other dark matter. VM could also do this. There may be a flow of current VM as a result, and this could explain the rotation of spirals and other dark matter phenomena. What do you think? Uh, Thanks for the best podcast in the known universe, (laughs) Rusty. Thanks, Rusty. That's a really interesting theory. It is. Um, And I'm sort of trying to think about it. So virtual matter pairs uh, are... I am pretty sure uh, that everything of that kind is taken into account already in our assessment of the matter content of the universe. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's true that, you, you know, you're probing a region of space-time that I'm not an expert in. But um, I, I'm, in a, in a slight way, surprised that Rusty has postulated this as... Um, as an explanation for dark matter, uh, because virtual matter pairs popping in and out of existence uh, permeate the whole universe, not just where normal matter is. And so um, what I might have expected is Rusty to say, is this, is this an explanation for dark energy? Oh. Uh, because dark energy is everywhere. Uh, dark matter isn't. Dark matter is not um, something that... Uh, sort of spreads through the whole universe. And we know that it's distributed in a clumpy fashion, just like the galaxies are in the universe. Mm. Um, Now, my guess is uh, that what would knock this idea on the head is gravitational lensing, um, because for that to happen, uh, you you need particles. You need something real, not something virtual. and it needs to be clumpy, otherwise it doesn't work. You can't just have it popping in and out everywhere. Uh, so, you know, I- I- imagining something that might, inter- a flow of matter that might interact with real matter, and slow, um, you know, speed up the rotation of spiral galaxies or whatever that is, um, I don't think that's a goer. Um, because I think you'd struggle to explain dark, uh, to explain gravitational lensing with this model. Um, and now a particle physicist sitting here might just say, well, it's, it it's doesn't work anyway because X, Y, and Z, but I'm not one of those. Uh, so I'm not going to say that. I'm just bringing my own personal view of this and hope that uh, Rusty acts in the spirit of, of uh, constructive debate. You've certainly run the broom over our first two guests today, Fred. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Please <laughs> tune in next week. <laughs> uh, it was nice knowing you, Zach and Rusty, and hope you come yeah, back again yeah, one day. Yeah,
fucking emblem. But no, fair enough. I mean, it's a, it's a good question to ask. Maybe it was a typo. Maybe he meant dark energy. <laughs> I don't think Never so. Never mind. No, it's good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rusty. Uh, good to hear from you as always. This is Space Arts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, being a um, uh, episode three hundred thirty, we're just going to carry on with the questions, and uh, the next question comes from, I hope, uh, Trevor, uh, who is also in Australia in a place called uh, Druin, I think it's called. I'm not sure I'm aware of it. Sorry about that, Trevor. Now I've done it. Uh, now um, he says, uh, my questions are about our moon and its similarities to the sun. Our moon. Moon appears exactly the same size as the sun in the sky. It rises in the east, it sets in the west, same as the sun. It traverses the northern sky as seen from the southern hemisphere, same as the sun. Its path across the sky changes with the seasons, same as the sun. So my questions are, how common is this within our solar system? Do the moons of other planets exhibit the same behaviour as our moon? How did this affect uh, early? Uh, how did this affect early astronomers' understanding of the moon and the sun? Did the fact that the moon and the sun appeared to be the same size and behaved similarly help or hinder their understanding of what was going on in the heavens? Uh, many thanks for your podcast. Damn fine question, Trevor. Yeah, really it's like great it. stuff. It is great stuff, uh, and um... better than Rusty's and Zach's. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer to Trevor's question is yes. All right. There you go. <laughs> and now the uh, next question comes from. <laughs> um, it, it's, it is the most extraordinary coincidence. And, uh, you know, I think it's almost spooky. This is such an amazing coincidence mm. that the angular diameter of the moon and the angular diameter of the sun uh, are essentially the same. They vary slightly. Both of them, because the uh, the Earth has an elliptical orbit around the Sun, so the Sun looks slightly bigger and slightly smaller at some times. Likewise, the Moon has a an elliptical orbit around the Earth, and so the Moon looks smaller and larger. In fact, it varies by fourteen percent, which is quite significant. Yeah, and that's why we get different sorts of eclipses. Sometimes the Moon doesn't quite cover the disk of the Sun, and we get an annular eclipse or a ring of fire, as it's sometimes called. Uh, so um, the uh, th that as I said, the coincidence, and um, it certainly would have uh, would have you know exercised the minds of very early astronomers. Uh, my, I, I think it's one of the reasons why we have religion actually, because the moon's disc exactly covers the disc of the sun. Mm -hmm. So periodically, the the, the sun's the, the sun turns to blackness, which, if you didn't really know what was going on, would be uh, a terrifying experience. I imagine um, so. Um, I, I, we know actually, um, Andrew, that um, uh, Indigenous First Nations people here in Australia, Aboriginal people, um, a, a lot of the Dreamtime stories about the sun and the moon actually uh, indicate that um, these these people did understand. Back to the earliest times, they understood what was happening. That mm. The moon was covering up the disk of the sun, and that's an astounding uh, realisation. Makes the flat um, earthers look even dumber, doesn't it? Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> well, yes, anyway, that's another story altogether. But uh, so it is a coincidence. And when you look uh, elsewhere in the solar system, yes, there are uh, eclipses 
by uh, other bodies, the moons of other planets. And you don't have to look very far to find a stunning video taken in April this year of uh, Mars's bigger moon, Phobos, in real time traversing the disk of the sun, uh, seen from the by the Perseverance rover. I remember that, yeah. It was spectacular. It happened fast too, didn't it? It was like 30 seconds? Yeah, something like 40 seconds or something like that. That's right. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I'm going to show that tonight in a talk I'm giving Mm. uh, because it's such fabulous footage. Um, So so they do happen elsewhere, but there is nowhere else where they exactly cover the disk of the sun. The nearest is one of the moons of Saturn, a tiny moon of Saturn, that if you were standing on the upper cloud decks of Saturn, uh, you would see this... Uh, oval body kind of just about cover the disk of the sun. That's the nearest there is. So it's a remarkable coincidence. Um, and the, the reason why the sun, you know, the moon follows the sun in the sky uh, and its, its path through the sky is similar is that's just because its orbit around the Earth is not very different in terms of its orientation to the orbit of the sun, uh, of the orbit of the moon, sorry, the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Uh, that's in a plane called the ecliptic plane, and the moon's orbit is tilted at five degrees to the ecliptic plane. So it's mm. virtually the same. And what that's telling you is that the moon's always going to be roughly in the same region as of the sky as the sun is, or following it, uh, depending on the phase of the moon. So, um, yeah, in- interesting coincidences, interesting stuff, uh, now well understood, except uh, for this curious thing. Uh, similarity between the angular size of the sun and the moon and just one other aspect of this this is a temporary phenomenon mm. uh, in about 300 million years it won't be doing that because the moon will have drifted away and so yeah make the most of it while you can yes go and, yes go and watch an eclipse yeah and and don't you know, don't take too long or you'll, or you'll, you'll never see it again it. yeah um right. i suppose uh, his question about whether or not earlier has um, got an understanding of the moon and the sun because of this weird coincidence is, is a good one. I, I imagine, though, being astronomers, they, they would have really puzzled over it and figured it out quite far. Uh, yes, that's right. I think, I think you know, it's, it's the ancient Greeks would have sussed this completely uh, and knew how to predict eclipses mm. uh, as... Um, yeah, as other, other 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 early peoples did as well. I, I suppose we are guilty of um, being ignorant of the intelligence of past civilizations. I mean, I walked the streets of Pompeii a couple of weeks ago, and honestly, yes, I've got to tell you, it was like walking through any town or city that we know of today. The only thing they didn't have was electricity, but for all intents and purposes, it was a city like any other. It was just, you know, old and made of rock, but it had streets, it had footpaths, it had shops, it had houses, it had questionable premises. <laughs> yes. um, it had it had everything that a modern city has. And, yeah. you know, to walk those streets, just incredible. So don't underestimate the, um, the intelligence of uh, ancient civilizations because they knew what they were doing. We just assume we're better at it than they, than they were. And it's not not an absolute, I don't think. Um, and as you said, the Indigenous peoples of Australia figured out the moon and the sun uh, thousands upon thousands of years ago. Yeah, mm. All right. Uh, great question, Trevor. Thank you. And uh, great to hear from you. Now let's uh, go to uh, a question from Judd and Lisa. 
who uh, are uh, patrons. So thank you for supporting um, Space Nuts financially. It's uh, certainly appreciated and, um, you know, we've been able to buy a lot of coffee. Uh, so uh, hello, Andrew and Fred. Always enjoy your fascinating podcast. So I was watching an episode of QI recently that mentioned a bit of space junk I hadn't heard before. Uh, it said that there is a theory that our moon originated from 12 smaller moons gradually coalesced into one. Interesting theory. Uh, QI isn't my number one source of space facts, so I'll put this to Fred. Uh, any truth to the 13 moon idea? Uh, why exactly 12, uh, not thousands of smaller asteroids? What did they all... Uh, uh, why did they all... Uh, I'm lost my place here. Why did they all completely coalesce into one? We're trying to read across a widescreen, so I keep losing the beginning of the next line. Uh, wouldn't there be stragglers drifting around like um, the space junk we've added? Uh, what is the most widely accepted theory of the origin of the moon? I think I recall one about a collision with a small molten earth that knocked a blob that became the moon. Uh, wouldn't want to have been around that day. No, me neither. Uh, that comes from Judd and Lisa in Sydney. Thank you for your um, questions. Uh, yeah, the moon seems to be a popular topic this week. <laughs> yes, indeed this is, uh, as you'd expect with eclipses around. Yeah. Um, so so really the question um, that's probably uh, the one to go straight to in Judd and Lisa's uh, 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 text is it i can't remember it's an email yeah it's an email um yeah is is what's the what's the current most you know most accepted theory of the origin of the moon and it certainly isn't that there were 12 moonlets um that uh is one that i haven't come across before but it sounds as though it is right on the fringes of the currently accepted ideas of how the moon formed uh, and i'm a bit surprised at qi uh, but their fact checkers are sometimes a little bit off the mark and actually they often get things about the moon wrong uh, i've noticed that yeah i don't watch qi these days because i'm time but <laughs> when i used to uh, that was it anyway um, what is the most uh, widely accepted view of the origin of the moon and it's exactly as john and lisa say uh, the idea that the early earth was impacted by a large object, something the size of Mars, um, which, uh, when when it collided, essentially removed a lot of the outer layers of the Earth uh, and blasted them into orbit around the Earth. So we've got a you know debris cloud around the Earth, which itself eventually coalesces uh, to form the Moon. And the main you know one of the main pieces of supporting evidence for that is the fact that the Moon and the Earth are basically made same rock. Uh, there are differences between them, but but the the, the bottom line is that most of the uh, material of of the moon is the same as the stuff in the Earth's mantle. That's the outer layer mm. of the Earth itself. So um, that's a kind of strong evidence which came from the Apollo era uh, moon missions. Uh, very strong evidence that suggests that they have a common origin. That they they came from the same blob of stuff and in fact people are so confident of that theory that we've given that uh, that colliding object a name it's called Thea yes named after the the mother of the moon um, in Greek mythology if I remember rightly so that's the the most widely accepted view and uh, it would be hard to see how uh, exactly this you know the questions that uh, Judd and Lisa ask about the 12 moon idea why aren't there left over and things of that sort it would be hard to see how 
how you could make a, a, a moon like the one we've got today from a, a Lego building set of 12 objects. I don't know how that would work at mm, all. Mm. Uh, we do currently have two moons, though, don't we? There's a small object that's been captured by the Earth's gravitational pull, but it won't be permanent. That's right, and it's probably a rocket body, I think. Uh, um, no, I, I think this one is actually a rock. Okay. But um, it's yeah. only tiny. These, and it's... these things do come and go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's what they said. Uh, you said there were only slight differences between the Earth and the Moon, um, that being that uh, the Moon's actually made of Swiss cheese. Uh, apparently, yeah. Yep. Mm. I just thought I'd throw that one in there because very well, important, very important, important to be factual. Yes. <laughs> all right. Did we did we cover all of their question? I think so. Yes, I hope so. Anyway, mm. uh, thank you very much. Well, they do pay us, so we want we want to cover yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, get it right. Yes, indeed. Um, thanks, Judd. Thanks, Lisa. Lovely to hear from you, and uh, thanks for supporting Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, uh, to um, wrap this up, we've got a couple of audio questions. And uh, the first one comes from uh, someone who sends us a lot of questions uh, and, and they're very astute. And this one I like because um, when I played it for you in rehearsal, uh, it, um, it tickled your fancy. You went, oh, great question. So this is Buddy in Oregon. Hi, guys. This is Buddy from Oregon again. Uh, just a real quick question this time. I was listening to an episode and you were talking about how the spin of the earth doesn't affect time. And I get that. Uh, but uh, if we were were to reverse the, somehow reverse the spin of earth, would that reel the moon in? Or would it keep progressing out? Thanks, guys. Huge fan. You guys are awesome. Thank you, buddy. Uh, look, it's a great question. And uh, Superman has actually done that. <laughs> but we don't know what happened to the moon. He reversed yeah. the, uh, the the spin of the Earth, so he could reverse time and save Lois. We all know that. <laughs> That's what happened, was it? Yeah. yeah, of course I do remember that. Yeah, I think I was there at the time, actually. <laughs> uh, so, so um, yeah, it's a great question, buddy. And uh, as with many of these, the answer is it depends. Um, because so, okay, so if you had the spin of the Earth uh, reversed. But the the rotation, uh, sorry, the revolution of the moon around the Earth con continued in the same direction. Mm. Then uh, I think I really need to think about this a bit more carefully. So I'm talking off the top of my head here. But I think you'd reel the moon in. Oh, uh, right. Because uh, the gravitational bulge, uh, which the moon raises on the Earth, would be projected in the direction away from the moon's motion. And so um, that, I think, would slow down the revolution of the moon. Yeah, it would. It would have a breaking effect on the moon. And when you break an object in orbit, you pull it in. So if the moon kept going in its same direction, but the Earth suddenly spun, spun the other way, uh, yeah, we'd pull the moon back. Okay. And, um, that would be a very interesting phenomenon. but. Anything that would reverse the spin of the Earth might reverse the direction of the moon as well, in which case it would still keep drifting away from it. Yeah, I suppose that would have to have to be a factor. I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine it would haul it into the point where it would smash into us. Would it? Uh, I don't um, 
no i don't think i don't think so i think you still get a stable outcome at the end of it mm. uh, but um yes so but i suppose sure, sure also I, I love these what if questions if you didn't already know but if you reverse <laughs> the spin of the earth and the moon kept going the way it is now it would lap us twice as fast wouldn't it yeah that's right yeah it would be quite phenomenal the speed at which it would appear to go through the sky. And that would have to have a high impact on tides and life on Earth in uh, it, it, general. It, um, it's, it's such a counterintuitive thing. Mm. Uh, it would still go around once in a moon, uh, but uh, it would uh, it, it would um, it would certainly change the way it goes through the sky. It appears to go through the sky right. with the diurnal rotation of the moon. See what you've started, buddy? <laughs> hmm? Started the old brain cells working, yeah, buddy, yeah. there, I can tell you. <laughs> Get you thinking. But I love the question. It's a really good one. Uh, and uh, thanks for oh. sending it in. Now, Fred, one more question to finish off this week's episode. And this one's uh, fairly close to home for you. It's self-explanatory too. Hi, Fred and Andrew. My name's Barry Brook. And I knew Fred when I was a lad living up at Siding Spring in the 1980s. Fred would no doubt remember my dad, Graham Brook, who worked up there as an electronics technician for about 13 years at the site. It's always been fun to hear Fred's voice over the last seven years anyway, um, during which time I must have listened to all 320 episodes, I think. Anyway, to my question. Given that we're now entering the age of giant ground-based telescopes with adaptive optics like the ELT, and they're situated in ideal, isolated, dry, high-altitude sites, I was wondering if there was any role left to play for existing mid-sized instruments like the UK Schmidt and the 2.3 metre or even the AAT. Do you think they can be upgraded to keep pace or at least continue to fulfil a meaningful scientific role? I noticed that even at Siding Spring there seems to be a recent focus on building smaller specialised instruments like SkyMapper and the Huntsman. Are they the future of the site? Anyway, thanks both and keep up the terrific podcast. Thanks, Barry. Lovely to hear from you. There's a little bit of a bolt from the past, Fred. Yes, um, and Barry um, is completely modest um, because he hasn't mentioned <laughs> that he's actually a professor himself. Oh. Um, and uh, just thinking back, I've run into Barry a few times, you know, over the, over the decades, um, um, and it's always a, del a delight to see him. And uh, I do remember his father, Graham, well. Uh, but um, and I'm. I apologise, Barry, but I can't remember what you are a professor of. But I do remember being very impressed with your academic, um, uh, you know, academic uh, achievements because I seem to remember you've won some awards uh, mm. as well. These are all locked in there somewhere. So great to hear your question. Great to talk to you. Um, but uh, I think your question's actually absolutely on the money. Uh, you know, we've got uh, an era now where the best observing sites for optical telescopes, the best observing sites in the world are, are about half a dozen, if that, mountain tops, uh, many of which, certainly um, many of the Southern Hemisphere ones are in Northern Chile, where conditions are probably the best in the world uh, or, uh, for optical astronomy. Uh, some would argue that Antarctica is better okay. uh, because they, they have some excellent conditions there too, but there are other issues that come to play in Antarctica, uh, not the least of which you you only see half the sky uh, and you only see it for half the year. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're all issues, but certainly not 
actually is where things like the very large telescope, the suite of telescopes that the European Southern Observatory runs, which Australian astronomers have access to now, and the uh, and the coming ELT, the extremely large telescope, which will be at Cerro Amazones in northern Chile, and and not forgetting the uh, the planned HLT, the honkingly large telescope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We've all got one of those in the back of our minds. <laughs> um, I like the idea. Yes, yes, the honkingly large. Yeah. Um, I used to call it the the FBT for the phenomenal telescope because you, by then people won't be able to spell. Uh, but, um, so it's you know anyway that's fine. And I was uh, about ooh. to correct you. <laughs> uh, the bottom line is uh, that so the ELT, the European Telescope at Cerro Amazonas, will be exactly. Uh, 10 times the diameter of the Anglo-Australian telescope, which has a 3.9-metre mirror. This will have a 39-metre mirror. Wow. And that is going to show us things that the AT never could because, of course, you're talking about very faint objects which come into focus with a big telescope like that. Um, so it's it's tempting to think that, you know, instruments like this and, the you know, the, the current 8 to 10-metre class of telescopes, which we're which are today's workhorses of astronomy, that mm. they might be redundant. Um, and I, I don't actually know whether that will ever happen. Um, the the issue uh, of what you do with these telescopes is reasonably clear cut. Uh, many of the four-metre class telescopes in the world, and there were several built at the same time as the Anglo-Australian telescope here in uh, New South Wales uh, back in the 70s and 80s, many of those are now... Oops, sorry. What it called? <laughs> Thought I had that on mute. With a musical introduction, they are now what what you call uh, single purpose telescopes. So they've they've got an instrument that lets them do one job, um, like uh, one that's run by the European Southern Observatory, a three point six meter that has an instrument on that's that's finding planets. It's called HARPS. Yeah, uh, it's I've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, some of the big telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere, the four-metre class, of, of one of them's got um, uh, a, a sort of survey-type facility on it to, to measure lots and lots of stars and planets. So these things do compress. Rather than trying to be all things to all astronomers, which they were when they were built, the yeah. four-metre class telescopes now generally are single-purpose. Actually, the Anglo-Australian Telescope is still offering five different instruments, um, and that makes it quite unique in this world, or, or almost unique. Um, and, and it, all, but it comes with a, a price in the sense that the economics of this is um, such that you you you've you've got to have a big crew to operate an old telescope uh, with many different facilities. So there may be a time in the future when the Anglo-Australian Telescope just becomes a one a one facility instrument a one-trick pony yeah and that's uh, that's a nice name for it um <laughs> i thought it was insulting <laughs> no, it's fine as long as it you know it keeps the telescope operating as long as it's a good trick uh, and it's a good trick the the other thing about these telescopes certainly in regard to the anglo-australian telescope is that it has it's on australian soil mm. it's not on the Best, the most supreme sites in the world. These are in northern Chile, as I said, in the southern hemisphere. Uh, it's in a, cl a climate where you've got perhaps two thirds of the nights are clear. You've got not quite the best atmospheric turbulence. It can be very good, but it doesn't match the Chilean sites. 
and that's the important criterion. Um, but it's in Australia. And what that means is that you've got a workhorse uh, on which people can try out new ideas for instruments. So it's a test bed for new instruments. And that's happened uh, with the UK Schmidt telescope that, that also mentioned. That's been a test bed for a number of new instruments. Yeah. Uh, the Anglo-Australian telescope is as well. Uh, plus, it lets you train astronomers on a, on a telescope where they don't have to go halfway across the world. Uh, they can use it on Australian sites with perhaps less competition for time on that telescope. So there is a role for them. Uh, now, whether that role will extend more than 20 or 30 years, I don't know. Um, I think perhaps in a decade, people will be looking seriously at some of these telescopes uh, and asking whether they are viable. Yeah. None of the four metre class telescopes have yet closed, and that includes the one, another that Barry mentioned, the uh, United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, although I think that's the one that may well be the first to close when it does. Mm. So retrofitting them and yeah. updating them. Putting new equipment on, that's right. That may be the option. It, it, well, that's what's happened. That's yeah. why they're still competitive today in an era of eight to 10 metre class telescopes. But not a permanent fix. It's a, they're ultimately Maybe. going to reach a, an end date. I think that's probably right. Yes. Yeah. Don't okay. know when it will be though. And yeah. Part of, it's actually part of my job, Andrew, is uh, looking at the long-term future of the Anglo-Australian Telescope and hoping that we can find the money to keep running it for yeah. as long a period as possible. All comes down to money, doesn't it? it does in the end. Mm. That's right. All right. Thank you, Barry, and great to hear from you, and thanks for your backstory, even though you left out the most important bit, which is <laughs> your scholastic achievement. But um, that's okay. Um, a lot of people don't like to skite, and that's fine. Fred did it for you. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, that wraps it up. Fred, thank you so much. It's been great, hasn't it? And welcome back again, Andrew, from your sojourns in Europe, and we'll talk again very soon. We will indeed. And don't forget, if you've got questions for us, uh, send them through via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Uh, there are various ways you can send us questions. You can send a text through the AMA tab or an audio question, or just click on the link on the right-hand side of the homepage and send us your audio question that way. And don't forget, while you're there, to uh, find out about becoming a patron. We've heard from one of our patrons today, two of them actually. And we uh, encourage you to visit the Space Nuts shop for no other reason than to laugh at stuff. Uh, but uh, while you're there, you can, you know, pick up a nice little prezi for yourself or someone else. Uh, in the meantime, it's been great having your company and I hope you can join us again on the very next episode of Space Nuts from me, Andrew Dunkley. It's bye-bye for now. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.